this is such a valuable learning tool as well, is the creation story that goes along, of course, with Adam and Eve's story, just the order and diversity that is in play with creation is so enlightening and directive to us to clearly, when you look at the variety in nature, I mean, whether you're looking at uh, flowers or landscapes or butterflies or tropical fish, clearly God is a God who loves diversity and values diversity and sees great meaning in it. But at the same time, values order and works with natural law As a young mother, I experienced a paradigm shift that transformed how I saw education and ultimately the world around me. I started this podcast, The Luminous Mind, to connect with and learn from people who are disrupting the status quo in how they learn, educate, and live in the world around them. Prepare for a paradigm shift. Light a candle. Light your world. Benjamin Franklin said, instead of cursing the darkness, light a candle. You're listening to The Luminous Mind with your host, Rebecca Bowman. Today's fire starter is Melinda Wilbright Brown. Melinda has a passion for solving problems, particularly those faced by women. The intersection of her nonprofit work, church service, and exquisite nature led her to pursue an intensive study of Eve, hoping to rediscover those truths long hidden among history's misunderstanding and misapplication of our beautiful origin story. That study led to the publication of her first book, Eve and Adam Discovering the Beautiful Balance, in April of 2020. Melinda earned a bachelor's degree in economics from Brigham Young University and loves teaching and discussing the gospel of Jesus Christ. She and her husband, Doug, are parents of four children and have recently entered the delightful world of grandparenthood. All proceeds of her book go to a variety of women's charities located on our show notes page. Well, welcome, Melinda. Thank you. Happy to be here. I am so excited to have Melinda with us. I just realized as I was preparing for this podcast that Melinda is the first a guest that I'll have on my podcast that we'll talk about a little bit of LDS, uh, you know, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints theology. But I absolutely loved her book. I can see so much relevance within our society for it that I think that this story, you know, oftentimes we don't think that we're religious, but the understanding that we have through scripture gets permeated to the rest of society. And I really think that this book that she has written, even Adam Discovering the Beautiful Balance, could do so much healing for our society. So I'm so excited to have you on. Uh, but before, oh, we get, <laughs> before we get into your book, though, go ahead and give our audience a little bit of background about yourself. Oh, okay. Um, well, let's see. I uh, am just really in the midst, like this week, of um, emptying my nest. Uh, my husband and I have four children, and our youngest is leaving for uh, college on the West Coast in a couple days. I have two little grandsons, which are just the cutest things in the world, of course. <laughs> and um, I'm just loving this phase of life. I think it's really great. And I'm loving just kind of being the captain of my own ship, which hasn't really you know, been the case for about 
29 years so much. I just, you know, get to choose how I want to spend my time a lot more these days. And um, I'm really, really loving just delving into learning about all sorts of great new things and uh, working on getting back into school to pursue a master's degree. So I'm taking a couple of online classes right now to kind of help me figure out the direction I want to take that. I spent the last four, almost five now, years working on this book project. And that just really was just a complete joy and delight to do and something that I really couldn't have predicted. But when the pieces began to fit together and point me in that direction, it just really felt like what I was meant to be working on. And it was just energizing and exciting every day. I mean, every day I was excited to jump out of bed and get back to work. So that's when you know you found a good project. (laughs) One of the things I really love about your book is all of the source material that you have in there. And I love how in the author's note, you actually talk like you did that on purpose so that we, you know, we'll go ahead and we'll read this book of yours, but then we can do our own study and our own research. Yes. Topics. Um, Yeah. Yeah, that literally was one of my goals. I wanted to help people figure out how to dig really deeply like I had and give them the tools and just kind of some guides to do that and get them pointed in the right direction. And one of the very best compliments I received in the writing process when I was working with several different beta readers was a young woman who was in graduate school who said, you know, I always thought I knew how to study and look for truth. And now I realize like, oh, I've barely scratched the surface. Like there's a lot more that I need to be doing to really find those things that are like I frequently say hidden in plain sight. And I just, I think that's true. We just, we have to be willing to put the work and the effort in and, and really dig and wrestle. And that's something I love to do. I'm a rabbit hole digger. So (laughs) (laughs) I get lost in rabbit holes quite a bit, actually. Well, and that's another thing, like with your book, you know, even though you say it's a a rabbit hole thing, I really think that it's one of those books that, you know, if you talk about, you know, people who dig too much or too whatever, we come Mm -hmm. out with our faith shaken. And the whole time I was reading your book, it was such a confirming thing to my faith. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, I I actually would contend that those who who have faith shaken, in my experience, it's because they don't dig. Mm -hmm. They are willing to stay shallow and not figure it out for themselves. And that was really that was kind of the driving attitude of mine, especially at the beginning was I just felt like I just wanted to take some time and tune out all of the world's voices about men's and women's relationship and just figure it out for myself. You know, that's what I did. And and I felt like I got to a lot of truth that was hugely enlightening and empowering and faith affirming for me. It it wasn't debilitating at all. It made me feel so much better. Yeah. Well, and I would like my audience to know, like one of the key factors for me staying in my faith, um, because I went through a time of like, is this really something I believe or whatever? And I went around and went to many different churches and, you know, read all the anti-Mormon literature out there and, you know, really tried to work through it. And I remember going to a church and one church talking about how we know that there's no beginning 
you know, basically that our life started here on earth. That's like the first we know of it. And something in my soul like screamed out like, no, that's not. Because as a, as a person of the Mormon faith, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we actually believe in something called the plan of salvation and that we believe there was a bunch of events that happened even before we got to the earth. And like with Melinda's book, we will dive into a little bit of that, but I wanted them to know like, you know, that's one of the things that we believe in our faith that we have a pre-existence. But I'd love to know a little bit more background information, you know, in the author's note, you talk tiny bit about it, but I'd like to know, like, why did you write this book about Eve and Adam? Uh, well, uh, that's uh, probably is a discussion that could take hours to, <laughs> to really give the full picture of that, but I'll try to sum up um, kind of two, two things that were happening simultaneously in my life, one on a more macro level and one on a more micro level. I've spent a lot of time working with different uh, nonprofit organizations that really work to protect and empower um, women. And just the older I got and as time went on, I just got more and more and more concerned about sort of the plight of women around the world, not just throughout time, but currently a lot of, a lot of hard things going on in the world for women. Yeah. And, and so I was really just concerned with, you know, I feeling like I think I understand what God's plan is and what our heavenly parents feel about women and that you know to sum that up it would be that we're every bit as valued as men and males and boys whatever that we're really meant to work together and be interdependent but then when you compare that to kind of lived reality there's such a gap there and so that was confusing to me and I wanted to figure out is the gap a function of my misunderstanding my divine plan or is it a function of flawed mortals living not in accordance with truth, you know, that the mm-hmm. kind of the results of a fallen world. And so that was kind of an ongoing issue I was having. And, and I think I kind of tried to just tuck it away and thought, I don't really have time to figure that out, or I wouldn't even know how to figure that out or whatever. And then concurrently with that, about four and a half years ago, we were having a bit of a family crisis, an extended family crisis that was presenting us with a really, really difficult situation where we just didn't feel like there was any great solution. We didn't like any of our options very much. And we were needing to try to figure out how we were going to compromise. And we didn't want to feel like anybody was getting thrown under the bus or out of the bus, you know, in the process, but that we were respecting and loving everybody and keeping everybody close, even though we had some disagreements about how to handle it. And it was at that point that I just had a very sort of profound experience. And as I was contemplating that one day, I have a portrait, a beautiful painting of Eve in my office. And I was just gazing at that and kind of brooding and pondering and trying to figure out what to do next with this issue. And just even said out loud, uh, kind of out of desperation and exasperation, oh, Eve, can you help me? And I just had a really profound personal experience where I felt like she answered back and that it was like she just leaned out of this frame and said, yes, I thought you'd never ask. And it just caused me to pause, like majorly, big pause, and think, 
wait, how? How could her story matter to my story? And the more I dug into that, the more I realized that not only did she and her experience and her attitude about embracing life, even with its challenges, not only did that inform our family issue that was going on, but it also was very much held the answers that I'd been searching for in this bigger issue of, of how men and women were meant to interrelate and you know why I was experiencing this sense of a gap in my faith and my lived experience and all of this. It just, it just started to uncover answers everywhere. And yeah. that was a big deal. Well, and often in our faith too, and, you know, maybe if you're an outsider looking in, you, you see that, that there might be some discrimination against women within our faith. Although I never really felt that, you know, I've always, um, I've always felt as a member of the church, we highly regard women because family is so central to what we believe in our doctrine, but in the foundation of the world in making sure that, you know, salvation comes to all of us. A, a lot of it comes from our belief in the family. But I feel like a lot of those misconceptions that we see within our own faith are actually very common misconceptions that's gone throughout all the whole history of time. I mean, we're even seeing still to this day, women treated like second-class citizens in various places of the world. You know, let's kind of unpack pack what maybe some of those common misconceptions are about the story of Eve and Adam. And how do you think understanding the story will help us better understand the plight of Jesus and why we need him so desperately in our lives and then also our place in history? So those common misconceptions. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that's that's a huge, huge question. Lots of pieces of that, but I'll try to just sum it up in maybe a couple of key ones that I can explain kind of easily. And if people want more, they they can read the book, I guess you could say. But okay, so I I think a really great place to begin is actually with the nature of the fruit and the trees that uh, Adam and Eve were presented with. I think it's a very common idea that even non-religious people, if, if they're asked to sum up the story, you know, if you kind of stop someone on the street and just said, hey, can in five sentences, can you tell me the story of Adam and Eve? I think most of them would start by saying uh, they were put in a garden and there was a good tree and a bad tree and she messed up and she ate from the bad tree and she ruined everything. Yeah. You know, that that's kind of the quick summation of how that maybe went down. And I think that the first really core misunderstanding is that, in my opinion, there was not a bad tree. They were both good trees. They had different consequences. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil had a major consequence in that it would introduce, most people would say it would introduce death into the world, but it also introduced birth into the world. So, you know, we believe that Adam and Eve were never going to have children in the garden because it was a very static state, that it, it was not a dynamic place for them. Everything was just still and in this state of perfection and, and kind of state of paradise, but there was no growth or change or transformation going on there. And so introducing birth and life was a really key part in learning and ultimately becoming more like God, more like our heavenly parents, more like our Savior through 
a mortal existence and kind of a, a life on earth sort of experience, you could say. And so that was, was something that had to happen. But uh, another really, really key point of our belief system and our doctrine is the importance of agency. And for me personally, I don't think you can overstate the value of agency and individual agency and this idea that it's a gift and that God wants us to use it and he wants us to choose for ourselves. And I think that in that sense, I think if we look at our origin myth, if you will, of of Eve and Adam or, or true story like some of us feel, it was very much designed. It's, it's this brilliant, brilliant design that required that they make a choice. And I happen to believe that that was Eve's choice to make because of women's role on earth to open the doorway uh, to mortality for people. I think it was, it was her choice and her decision when to begin that process and, and when she felt ready to do that. That's and, interesting. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, we always hear, I mean, one of the common phrases now is, it's my body, my choice. And mm-hmm. she made that very, you know, she yeah. made that decision. That's that's an excellent way of looking at it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I just, you, oh, that's okay. Yeah, I just, I just don't think that that was Adam's choice to make at all. I think he has kind of a different stewardship. And in our faith tradition, we believe that through his priesthood ordination, and I say that cautiously because we believe that men and women have um, access to God's power for sure, but through his access to actually be able to perform ordinances and saving ordinances, sacraments, if you will, and kind of a more general Christian Pre- sense. Yeah, preparing us right? for the Savior's yeah. coming. Yeah, yeah that, um, that he's really kind of providing access to that second tree, the tree of life, which I would actually call the tree of eternal life. I think it's it much more represents eternal life and kind of that's, that's his piece of it. But neither can care or watch over their stewardships without the help of the other, which is just part of this beautiful design. I mean, the, the balanced interdependence of their complementary stewardships is just really spectacular. I just think it's so beautiful. So, you know, those are a couple of really key points, just sort of in in how the conundrum, if you will, of the garden was presented to them. Um, And I think there's just a ton of meaning in it that they had to choose and it had to be their choice. And God just absolutely refused to give them any sort of hint of what he wanted them to do. There had to be some uncertainty involved in that. And, you know, so, so I just think, I think it's a beautiful puzzle that was laid out for them. And, you know, we also believe, at least I believe, but I think generally in our faith tradition, we believe that there was some tutoring and some learning going on in the garden, even though it may have been more like the equivalent of book learning rather than like street smarts that they would get once they entered mortality, but they still had some understanding and information. They were innocent, but they were not ignorant. And, you know, another thing that I think we forget is that we really have no sense of the time frame that this took place in. They may well have been in the garden for eons before they felt ready to proceed to the next step. And, 
and I think our absolutely loving, caring Heavenly Parents would have been very patient about that, and I don't think there was any rushing going on. And then I just think in a very grand sense, you know, some people today, and again, that just the the person on the street being asked about this, even if they're completely non-religious, might say, um, she messed everything up, and this is like a backup plan. You know, this isn't the way it was supposed to be. And I would disagree with that. I would say that, oh, no, this was exactly the way it was supposed to be. This was all part of the plan. It just needed to be on their timetable and at their choice. And so, you know, that's a big difference, too. And then in a very general sense, just this notion that she's so maligned and defiled Mm -hmm. for having made the choice to eat the fruit. It's always stunning to me that throughout time and across cultures, even by those who would completely discount the story, its truthfulness or its meaning or any of those things, they still refer to it with saying, well, you know, women are cursed from the start. They messed up everything and they ruined everything. So they'll always be lower than men. And, you know, men have the right to subjugate them. And so it's such a strange rationale to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even the way uh, you talk about this in your book, the way that they perceive the fruit, it's always picked out as an apple. And apple is a one of the definitions for apple is like evil, you know, like that's exactly a lot of the world would see it as like an evil thing that happened. Yes, yes, yes. And we probably just should uh, just take a quick minute to explain that a little bit more clearly for anybody who doesn't kind of know that story. Um, And this is really, really widely accepted. Any linguistic scholar will agree and back this up. But when the Bible was being translated into Latin. And of course, the Old Testament originated in Hebrew, and then there was a Greek version of it, and then the New Testament was written in Greek. And and then it was kind of moved over into the Latin. The scribes just sort of treated that like kind of like a pun and a play on words, because the Latin word for apple is uh, a word malum, M-A-L-U-M, and that is a homophone. And one of the other meanings of it, like you said, is evil. And so it really was intended when as soon as they started depicting it as an apple, it was just like this cruel joke that that she was evil and the fruit was evil. And, you know, we see that everywhere. That's such a common thing in fairy tales and Snow White, you know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's what I guess I love because I've listened to several podcasts that are of other faiths or other denominations, and they have mentioned that Eve was evil. A lot of people see her as an evil person kind of in the scriptures Mm -hmm. that, and then they, there's somewhat of a disconnect. Like how does, I mean, we go from Adam and Eve and then all of a sudden we're talking about the coming Messiah, (laughs) you know, and there's like kind of this disconnect, but I love how your book actually makes it this very beautiful harmonic thing. And when we talk about uh, it, it was even shocking to me. So you know, um, you talk a lot about the temple liturgy a lot in this book. And so to just, I mean, that's very sacred liturgy to us, but there was always a disconnect to me. Like 
in our chapels, we talk about the Savior and how to be like the Savior and use his example. But at the temple, we really focus on the creation of the world and then also the story of Eve and Adam and what that means. And so, and I've known a lot of people that will go into the temple and they're like, I don't see any connection here. And I think your book does a beautiful job about making it that harmonious thing between mm-hmm. the story and Jesus. Thank you. Into this. Yeah. But, so we talked a little bit about like the use of language and things like that. That's kind of made it more difficult for us to understand this process with Eve and Adam. But let's talk about like, what did you find as you began researching the story that's kind of different to what we know our story yeah. In the world. Yeah. You know, at, at the cultural hall, he joked like, oh, did you find the Bible of Eve? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, okay. So there, there are lots of different aspects of this that we could discuss, but just picking out a few kind of key ones. In my research, I was really trying to read everything I could find about biblical studies about it. In fact, I would probably even say the majority of what I was studying was not scholarship done within our faith tradition and our religion. It was, it was Jewish and Catholic and Protestant of all sects and uh, Islam and, and lots of different elements that take this origin myth as part of their tradition as well. And there are scholars in all of those faith traditions doing great research on this. And I am certainly not the only one and not the first one by any means who was really trying to restore Eve's honor, that that is going on all over the place, you know. And in really picking apart the linguistics of it and getting to the root of some of the words now, if we're looking at the Genesis account from the Old Testament, so that was originally written in Hebrew, trying to get to the bottom of what those Hebrew words really mean is a complex issue. Actually, since the time that I finished work on the book and sent it off to the publishers, I've been studying biblical Hebrew, and more so than, I mean, I, I was studying it as I was working on the book too, but I mean, I was like, I'm taking a beginning biblical Hebrew course now, and probably should have started with that, but Anyway, that's okay. I'm getting to it now. And it's just fascinating to me. The more I learn about kind of the origins of that language and how it's translated and the complexities of it, there's no surprise that by translating that over to English over the course of thousands of years with many different scribes and rabbis and translations and all these different players involved at each point, kind of at each junction of a different interpretation or translation, things are lost and things are added based on what that translator wants to get across from the story. And so you really have to take it back to the very, very root words of Hebrew. And so, for instance, one great example of this is the word that we have translated as rib in the portion about that she was made from Adam's rib. Now, we believe in our faith tradition that that's just completely figurative, that that's, that is not an obstetrically correct idea whatsoever, and it wasn't meant to be, that there's much deeper meaning there uh, metaphorically. And even so, though, 
it's curious, this idea that she was made from a rib. Why would you say from a rib? But when you get into the Hebrew of that, that same word, the word is Sela, T-S-E-L-A, is translated most everywhere else it's used in the Bible as side, not rib. And that's a pretty big difference. If we think that it's like God created a human and then took one side to make the woman separate from the man and then told them and commanded them to come back together and cleave together and work together. That's this really beautiful imagery of wholeness separating into two portions and then coming back together into wholeness. And I don't have any problem with that. I I think that's gorgeous. I don't love the idea that I'm made from a rib and, you know, it's this one little bit from Adam and, you know, then he owns me because of it or something. That's, that's such a, that's such a twisted interpretation of that. But I think, you know, linguistic issues like that through the translations have really caused a lot of confusion. So those things that I just think really need correcting, but but just everything about just the context that we don't understand because we're reading it through modern lenses. And in fact, there's just a fabulous, fabulous book about this. And it's very much entry level. I think anybody who's interested at all in this would be fascinated with this book. It is called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. And the subtitle is Removing Cultural Blinders to Better Understand the Bible. It's written by two theologians, Randolph Richards and Brandon O'Brien. And it's somewhat non-denominational, just sort of Christian approach to trying to recognize all the ways that we misinterpret and misunderstand the Bible to our great loss, almost as far as I can tell, without exception, when we understand better where the authors and writers were coming from, it just makes so much more sense. And it's so much easier to apply it to us effectively. So that's a book I would really recommend if that's of interest to any of the listeners. That's cool. And I mean, some people, it's pretty common part of our theology that we believe that there are mistakes in the Bible. And that's, that was one of the prophet Joseph Smith, he recognized that. I thought that was interesting, too, that you gave some background into him, too, and how he also recognized like there were some like misreadings. And so he was a studier of all kinds of different languages as well. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. Yes. In fact, he loved the German translation of the Bible because he felt like that one captured a lot of the meaning better than English did. And I just think really in, in a much broader sense and just a spiritual type of sense, it's easy for us to recognize that each of us feels the spirit or God working in our life and communicating with us a little bit differently. You know, some people would describe it as ideas coming into their mind and others might be a feeling in their heart or some actually as words that they hear through their ears into their mind. Or, I mean, there are just so many different ways that we experience those impressions. How do you put language to that? And, you know, what one person's idea of the best English words to capture that or French or German or Spanish, whatever, there's nothing that would say that that's going to translate to my way of thinking, Mm -hmm. ideally, you know, there's just, there's always, always something lost in translation. So... 
And if you've ever worked with language and you've had to translate for somebody else, it is hard to get the meaning across sometimes exactly how that person meant it in that particular language into another language. Yeah. Now to take a break. Are you new to homeschooling? Maybe you're a veteran homeschooler and just need some continued encouragement. I'm so happy to announce that the Idaho Freedom Action is sponsoring me in offering a free webinar. For a couple of years, I've been teaching coaching classes for an online school, and this year, in an effort to reach a larger demographic, I'm opening these courses up to everyone. These courses help give us a broader vision and better family relationships as we work through creating self-directed, love-of-learning families. We are holding these classes every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Mountain Time through the school year. To find out more about these courses, go to theluminousmind.net and sign up on our email list. You can also join us on Instagram or the Luminous Mind Facebook page to find out more information. Or just simply check out the link in the show notes for this episode. Recordings for these courses will also be available on the Luminous Mind Patreon page. Join us for empowered learning for families. Now back to the episode. And that's one thing too. Do you feel like, so one of the questions I have down is that, you know, why do you think it's essential that we know the history and the origin of these words as we're learning about the story? I kind of wonder if we don't have a good understanding of the origin, the Bible is going to seem kind of weird and clunky to us for one. And then maybe that's the disconnect why people like see that not really having application in their life anymore because Mm -hmm. it's like this what's your take on that yeah well I think I mean I've really come to sort of I don't I don't want to downplay or belittle the Bible in any way so I'll choose these words as carefully as I can but I would say the specific words in English and the King James version or whatever your version you're reading from I almost take them like with a grain of like a grain of salt, right? Because it's much more ideas that they were trying to capture. And the words are just woefully insufficient to really get those points across, that it's much more getting the sense of what their idea was, almost in an imagery sort of way. In fact, it's really fascinating. The more I've been learning about Hebrew, you know, the shapes of uh, we would consider letters, but they're really more like characters in Hebrew, they originate from like pictographs, like Phoenician pictographs that were drawings trying to capture fairly complex ideas in a simple line drawing. And then that translates over time into kind of these shapes that become phonetic symbols. But when you're learning Hebrew, you're really learning much more about what that pictograph represents. And then you're bringing those ideas together. It's, it's a little bit more like sign language, maybe, than like a written language. Like if you've been exposed at all to like American Sign Language, you know that the person signing is not like spelling out every letter or it's not these very, very specific one-to-one relationships between a word and a sign. It's more that signs have general ideas, and as you fit those signs together, you capture the meaning of a phrase or a sentence. And I think that's a better way to think about 
how the Bible began. And well, and and so we, much of the beginning wasn't even written down. I mean, oh, exactly. I mean, yeah. it was oral. And, and then when they went to compile it, they were under some great distress. You know, it was the diaspora and everybody's spreading out and they're trying to hold on to the traditions and the roots of their religious faith. And so they're kind of hustling to get this gathered and, and they're taking it from all these different places. And then there's some debate about, well, whose account should we use for that little bit? And who should we use for that? and what gets included and what doesn't, what becomes the official canon. You know, it's such a complicated story. I mean, there's so much more to it than I think we typically think of when we just pick up the Holy Bible off our desk or whatever to start reading. And so that understanding really, really helps us to make better sense of what's contained therein and figure out how to apply it better to ourselves, I think. Definitely. Well, I want to kind of come back to that. But first, I'd like to know, like, you know, as you began this process of learning about Eve and Adam, Adam and Eve, Mm -hmm. um, I love that too. Like the title of the book is Eve and Adam. We always hear it related as Adam and Eve. But really, that's kind of what the book is about. It's an intertwined relationship between the two. But I'd like to know, like, as you began the study about her, you know, when you felt like she was talking to you from your picture, Mm -hmm. to now. How do you feel like your paradigm has changed over time and and experience with the subject? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so much. I think the most concise answer is that I just live a much happier life. I'm a happier person. I feel joy more easily in spite of problems and troubles and conflict and stress that might be going on around me and, and, you know, within my life, because I think it's become much easier for me to uh, see the bigger picture and keep a broader perspective and just recognizing how life is all about learning. I really prefer to think of it as just a series of practice experiences rather than a test. I I really don't like the notion that it's a test. I think it's all practice. And the more mistakes, the merrier, it it almost feels like, because that's really where the learning takes place. And something that is kind of interesting, and there were lots of times my husband would see different books I was reading, and he'd say, what? I thought you were doing research. That can't possibly go along with your research on Eve. And I'd say, oh, yes, it totally does. Because a lot of the books I was reading were about neuroplasticity and how people learn. Also, you know, how we remember things or how we memorize things, just kind of how our brains work and process experiences into transformative learning and changing us. And all of that is just absolutely fascinating to me. And the more I read and learn and study about that, the more convinced I am that like, this is the most brilliant, beautifully designed plan imaginable. I mean, this is how we are meant to learn. So experience is good. And sometimes bad experience is good. And, you know, good experience is more comfortable, but we sure learn a lot from the uncomfortable stuff. And I think that is just a really important part of life is figuring it out and comparing, hmm, that was uncomfortable. How could I do it differently this time to make it more comfortable? You know, that sort of thing. And then, you know, of course, all the interpersonal relationships, that's kind of a different plane 
of the experience as well, but also hugely crucial to recognize that we are better together, that we really do need each other. We all bring different strengths just because of the way things go. Also, we also bring uh, different liabilities. And so by working together, we just really can make better progress than individually. I love that. And that can be not just male, female relationships, but, you know, to heal our world type of thing. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. And even though we may not be religious, the Bible does influence our lives in many ways. And that's kind of, I kind of want to move the direction of that, you know, why the study about Eve was so important. Like, how can that help us, uh, you know, knowing maybe some of these new things that you're talking about that are very disruptive to what we have known before, how that can help change Mm -hmm. our world, how we can even use the Bible to do that and better understand, you know, that I think that's really why when you're talking about all the different learning and that, you know, life is about practice and it's not really a test. I mean, even in our church, we always talk about like, this is a great test, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's just, I think we get a lot of that. Semantics. Yeah. Yeah. From the way that we've been educated and stuff, we, we seem to think that. But I think that's one thing that we can learn from the story of Jesus is that, or why that's so important is because God the Father and Jesus are very much experiential learners, and that's how they wanted us to learn, you know, they feel like that's the best way to do so, but. Yeah, definitely. What are some messages maybe of how we can take these things and flip them? Yeah, yeah. Um, As you were saying that, kind of two main themes came uh, to mind, so I'll just touch on those. The first is, I think it's really significant, this notion of the condescension of God, and that's this idea that a divine being would come to earth and take on a mortal body and experience what we are going through in order to understand us better and be able to succor and strengthen and heal us because he understands firsthand. I think that is a huge piece of this puzzle that 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 mattered to him and he was willing to descend from his thrones above and begin life as a little baby and go through the same learning uh, line upon line sort of process that we all have gone through. That, I think, is just really, really beautiful and profound, and that that matters so much. I also think kind of this little bit of a tangent, but I think that really points to the value of a physical embodied experience where a spirit and body come together and our five senses really work to help us learn so often and especially for women and young women and girls they really struggle we really struggle with how our bodies relate to our spirits really to damaging effect you know the objectification of women is just one of the things that i've been studying for years before i started this project and it's, and maybe uh, even the masculine yes yes and yes well and the extreme masculinization of men you know this pigeonholing of what men and women are supposed to be to fit the ideal of modern society it's just so it's so warped and so so damaging it's 
it's so refreshing to see somebody or know someone or meet someone who clearly values the physical embodied experience because they recognize this is a great way to learn and mm-hmm. we're working together and our spirit and body really need to cooperate in order to do our best learning. And that's a big deal for me. I, I really feel like my five physical senses really facilitate learning for me, whether it's uh, just completely secular education or spiritual education, it doesn't matter. To me, I can tell the difference when I'm respecting and valuing my body in the process. And so that piece of it, I think, is really yeah. important. And, and that's kind of funny. We hear a lot about mindfulness, you know, that we want to oh, be yes. in the moment. We wanna, I think that's one of the cool things is that sometimes when we, we think that we're being non-religious, but anyway, mm-hmm. I think that's driving us back to maybe what God wants for us more than we even yes. realize. Yes, like we would say within our faith tradition, and I personally really believe that the soul is body and spirit interconnected and working together in a very balanced way. Neither is overpowering the other, but they're both really working together. And I think that's what mindfulness is. I think soulfulness is another way to describe mindfulness. It's really bringing the two together in the here and now in an empowering way. So yeah, I love the mindfulness movement. I think it's Mm -hmm. so fabulous and so beneficial to everybody. And and I hope we just keep making strides forward there. But then kind of a back to your original question uh, about, about Christ and how all this kind of plays together. I think for me, my understanding of the value of agency and that, uh, like you said, because I believe in a pre-mortal existence, I believe that infinity goes both directions, before and after, that that need to preserve and protect agency is really what required a savior. And so I think agency and the, the atonement of Jesus Christ just fit hand in glove. I mean, like interlaced fingers, you know, forming a fist, a a really great tight hold. They just have to go together. And, and I kind of like to think of like agencies, twin sister as repentance that Christ facilitates repentance so that we can learn from our mistakes and not be damned by them. Or even turn back to God. I mean, I guess that's how I always, I'm, I'm thinking of repentance so much more like of us redirecting our mind. Yes. Uh, Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, that's the Hebrew meaning of that word is just to turn again, to just keep turning back to God. And like speaking of mindfulness, to me, that just encapsulates mindfulness so perfectly. You know, when you're sitting in a yoga class or whatever, and there, you know, you've got your great guide there saying, you know, if your mind wanders, just acknowledge that it's wandered and just bring it right back and bring it back again, bring it back again. You know, to me, that's just repentance again. And again, just keep turning to God, turn to God, turn to God. And so, yeah, I think that that's, that's just a wonderful way to see it and see how it all fits together and how beautifully balanced it all is that they go, they support each other like puzzle pieces. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, in talking about that agency and that need to protect agency, that's another very integral part of our theology is that we believe that that was the whole struggle before Mm -hmm. we even came here is like what kind of freedom we would be given. And so many people, I think when they think of the Bible, they think of a right and wrong kind of Mm -hmm. thing. And I would hope that within what we believe that we believe like this sounds horrible, but there's less of a right and wrong. And there's more like there's either a freedom or captivity type Mm -hmm. of attitude between, I mean, do you see that as well? Yeah, 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 for sure. I think there, there are lots of different approaches we can take for things, but ideally it's about preserving that it be our choice. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, I I think maybe that's the the rebellion against the Bible is because we have used it to like, okay, this is the right way to live. And going over here is the wrong way to live. But you have so many people that are kind of middle of the road type of people, Mm -hmm. you know, and and so there's a lot of pushback against the Bible because of that. Maybe. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's true. And, and I think, you know, one of the complicated things about agency is that there's what I kind of think of as agency clash that just goes on constantly, because I can only use my agency 100% the way that I choose to, as far as nobody else is involved in the picture. I mean, as soon as yeah. any other human being kind of comes into my sphere of influence, either something I do is going to damage or diminish their agency to some extent or another, and something they do is going to diminish my agency to some extent or another. Um, And so like in the book, I use an analogy of a three-legged race that it kind of feels like that, where my agency is tied to my partners, which are like this backyard party game, that we're kind of tied together and I'm under their influence as much as they're under mine. And it's kind of this battle of push and pull and who gets to chart the course and decide where we're going. And, and obviously the secret to a three-legged race is cooperation. You know, if you kind of can get in a rhythm and decide together how you're going to do it and where you're headed, it works so much better. It's so much less painful than if you're both trying to go opposite directions. Yeah. And I think kind of in a nutshell, one of the really, really beautiful aspects of Christ as our Savior is as kind of being the bridge between agency gaps or, or the agency clash. I mean, he can fix that and mm-hmm. make it all work out so that where one person's has been diminished, he can make up that difference and he can, you know, restore to them their ability to make the choice ultimately. And, you know, that's a very complicated cosmic equation that is way beyond me and, you know, any of us. But I do believe that that's really where the power and beauty of the atonement lies is in reconciling all of the clashing of agency and making it work out for our good. That's awesome. Well, and you see that within our society, you see, you know, I've never really thought about it, but that's really, we could all be free if we never had to interact with each other. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. But, but, but because our society is so intertwined, we feel this need to control and to push and whatever the other person in our direction so that we can still keep our agency as well. Do you know, yeah. do you know what I mean? And that's, yeah, 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 that's exactly right. And I think too, when we see it, as this complicated equation with all these variables and 
difficult to understand coefficients in front of each variable kind of related to how much or how little agency we actually have based on our experiences and what other people have done to us and all this sort of thing. For me personally, it's very humbling. And I would say it behooves all of us to be much less judgmental Mm -hmm. and just recognize that you know, I have no idea what that person's equation looks like. And I just have to trust that they're doing their best because I sure would like them to trust that I'm doing my best because I am, you know, and just everybody being a lot more patient, a lot more forgiving. And that's part of, like you said, you know, how is this, all of this studying and work on this book changed me or, or, you know, what have been my big takeaways. One is that I am so much more patient with myself and with others because, you know, we're all going through some complicated stuff and we're just trying to figure it out and learn from it. Yeah. We will return to our show after a word from our sponsors. For the ultimate in backcountry comfort, check out the high quality gear of Teton Hammock Company. Whether you're going on an overnight trip or a week-long adventure, the ultralight outdoor equipment from the Teton Hammock Company will keep you warm, dry, and sleeping like a baby. Their products are made of top quality materials that outperform all others. Check them out at tetonhammocks.com with an S. That is tetonhammocks.com. Hang with the best, Teton Hammock Company. Now back to the episode. And that's the perfect segue, I guess, of why Christ is the perfect bridge. I mean, we saw that in his life and his example of what he was to us. I don't know if you've ever studied the mimetic theory and Rene Girard's whole thoughts on we have this desire to mimic uh, somebody in all of uh our life. Yeah. And Christ gives that to us. He's the perfect mimic for us. He's the perfect one. But the cool thing is too, is that Christ recognizes that we all have the need for us to mimic somebody. So he Mm -hmm. always deflects. He's never like, Mm -hmm. and when everybody's praising him, he always goes, well, everything I do, you know, I'm basically father. father. But that's once again, a perfect mimic for us to do as well is Mm -hmm. to mimic that father. How do you feel like, like, let's try to take this book, all this knowledge that we have, uh, the biblical things, and make it effective for our lives now? You know, what are some ways, I mean, we've talked about how, you know, Christ can be the bridge and it can restore that bond, mm-hmm. but what are some other areas that do you think we could help with collaboration and how we try to bring this balance into our lives? Mm-hmm. Well, like I said, definitely being more patient <laughs> and <laughs> forgiving of each other, but I think too, just, you know, recognizing that uncertainty and risk is a good thing to nudge us out of our comfort zone and into a willingness to try something differently than we have before. I think that's a really, really great way to learn. Also, this idea that we have to go through things. There's really no way of avoiding a lot of the hard life experiences. I think of that fun children's song about we're going on a bear hunt and can't go over it, can't go under it, have to go through it. And I think that that's a good reminder to me that, you know, just buckle down, pull up your bootstraps and find a way through and just know that, you know, you're probably going to get muddy and tattered and maybe injured a bit going through the hard stuff, but 
you know, we can help each other recover from that after. And certainly the Lord is there to help us in that recovery process after as well. And just by having that willingness to figure things out and keep trying and keep getting back up again when we fall, I think that's the beauty of what life learning is really about. And, you know, it's certainly the way that we want to demonstrate to our children how learning is best done. You know, I think that for me, when I look back on my childhood, one of the best ways that I enjoyed learning and learning about life was when my family would travel together and we would go on big trips. And because of my father's profession, he did a lot of consulting around the world. And so he was able to take us sometimes on some of these neat international trips. And one of the things that was always so fun about them is that it was so new to all of us. He was in uncharted territory as much as we were. And so we would get in pickles and we'd sort of, you know, pull over on the side of the road and put our heads together and say, well, hmm, who's got an idea? Like, what should we do? And of course, this was before cell phones and all the other technological devices that we have to make things easier for us these days. But, But it was always really fun to go on those adventures and know that maybe I would come up with a great solution to a problem we might run into that wouldn't always be my dad or my mom. Mm -hmm. You know, we would all come up with those things together. And just to look at life like an adventure that we're all going through together. And it's not a competition between each other, you know, are really helpful attitudes. Well, and when we think about models, you were talking about the uncertainty and the risk. That's a perfect way Eve was such a good model for us is that she took a lot of uncertainty and risk in her decision. And I think the world has always cast her as a, you know, we always seem to think that she was punished for that. And that because Mm -hmm. of that, all women are punished. And, but I love what you're saying. Like, basically, like, even if we're the underdog in the story, we also have the power to make the decision and to change and to, to take that uncertainty and risk in our own lives. I feel like that's kind of like that story that you're telling about with your, Mm -hmm. your parents, that even as a child who was somewhat of an outcast in communities, I mean, still to this day that we don't value the voices of children, Yeah, that we still can take that story and know that we can do something good, you know, with our learning and our lives and all of that. Yeah, 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 for sure. Well, and one thing we haven't really even touched on, but I think this is such a valuable learning tool as well is the creation story that goes along, of course, with Adam and Eve's story, just the order and diversity that is in play with creation is so enlightening and directive to us to clearly, when you look at the variety in nature, I mean, whether you're looking at uh, flowers or landscapes or butterflies or tropical fish, clearly God is a God who loves diversity and values diversity and sees great meaning in it. But at the same time, values order and works with natural law. And I think all of those things are really helpful to us as we navigate life to appreciate the value of diversity, but also the value of natural law and order. And part of the real secret in learning through agency is that we have to have unfettered consequences that we can learn from, maybe not necessarily immediately, but at some point, 
we need to know that our actions have connected consequences that yeah. we'll get. And you can't pick up one end of the stick without picking up the other sort of thing. Yeah. And there's a lot of that in our world where we want to try to avoid the consequences, yeah. but we can't. That was actually one of my favorite. I even turned down the page of that because you do talk about the order and then the differences and the variety of how God, he respects order, but he loves the differences. Mm-hmm. He loves the uniqueness. And then you yeah. have participation as of another part of it. And I took that very much as a personal message. Like sometimes we just want to sit on the sideline and basically judge how somebody yes. should have done something or how, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but really it takes us finally just jumping in and participating. That's right. That, you know, I wish I could have pulled out some of these quotes in here. I just had turned down the page because I was yeah. like, okay, I got to remember this particular section, but that part almost had me in tears for some, oh, for some reason. Nice. And then it was just a very meaningful part that, you know, we can't just sit on the sidelines and just mm-hmm. think that we can be an armchair quarterback of how yeah. we think somebody should. And That's should doing exactly something. right. It's a participatory <laughs> sport. Got to get in there and get dirty. <laughs> well, other yeah. than me, just totally praising this book, what is some other feedback that you've received about your message? How do you feel like it's helping other people be more successful? Well, um, people have been very, very kind, and that's been really gratifying, and I am just really appreciative of that. But I would say one thing that has been really interesting, we have a kind of social media presence, an Instagram account, and a little bit on Facebook, but we're really on Instagram, called Brave Like Eve. It's brave.like.eve. And my daughter and daughter-in-law helped me kind of manage and run that. But our goal is for that just to be a really encouraging, uplifting place where we can just appreciate the value in embracing life, even its thorny patches. And it's been really fun over the last several months as that's begun to take off to have people reach out to us and say things like, you know, I was going through this really hard thing recently And before I really even realized what I was doing, I realized that I kind of had this mantra in my mind of just be brave like Eve, be brave like Eve, be brave like Eve. And like, I just, I can't even, there aren't even words to describe how happy and thrilled that made me just to think, oh, if we just can change the dialogue around her and give her the honor that clearly in my mind, she deserves and has always deserved. And, you know, attach that epithet of brave to her. How wonderful. And not just for women, for everybody. Like, I love it. You know, I want little boys to say, oh, I'm going to be brave like Eve. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. We've all been told for years, you know, be honest, like George Washington and, you know, and all these things, like it's not a gender issue at all. It's just finding a model where you can, you know, try to mimic that great characteristic. And there's just no doubt in my mind, she is brave. She was brave. And, and that's something we all have to be to get through life well and to be resilient. You know, resiliency is one of the most crucial things that we can learn and that we can teach those who follow up behind us, our children and, and everyone. And just being able to bounce back from disappointments and mistakes and failures and, and just see them all as learning opportunities. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and sadly, you know, Eve is part of our DNA. I mean, she's, yes, our, she's our mother, no matter if you're yeah. male, female or whatever. And when yeah. you have part of your family that's being cast as the bad guy, you know, you see yes. this a lot in divorce. You know, if, if one parent talks bad about the other, then the children start to feel bad about themselves because they're part of that DNA. But yeah. that's what's been going through our, I mean, I think this could be a very healing message for no matter what gender you are, that yeah. Eve had a very brave, courageous beginning, and we should all be brave like Eve. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, so. that's exactly right. Yes, I, I think that's so right. And I think, like you said, when one portion of humanity, especially 50%, is being maligned or subjugated unfairly, wrongly, and just through misunderstanding and misinterpretation, it's so damaging to everyone. It's damaging to men who miss out on what we have to offer and, and who feel an unnecessary burden to carry the weight. That's not how that was meant oh, to be, yeah. you know. <laughs> and it's certainly damaging to women who feel belittled and like they aren't worth as much. And so they just sort of fall back and never live up to their potential. And then so damaging to children who are watching that play out. Ultimately, if we think of the family and the home as kind of the building block of society, then everything hinges in how those key relationships yeah. uh, are portrayed to our young people for them to learn from and then take outward into their community and their nation and the world. You know, those things really, really matter. So I like how you say that this could be so healing. I, I absolutely think so. And everybody is searching for healing. And I think oh, yeah. this is at the most fundamental level Let's get to the truth of this and yeah. recognize that we are meant to do this together yeah. in a complementary well, fashion. Well, and when we think of the family, uh, just within our own time period now, we can see what happens when there is damage in the family. I mean, we look at the Black Lives Matter movement, and that's been a lot of it. The, the family structure has been totally demolished, and it's caused a lot mm -hmm. of problems with their society, the way we view them. I mean, all those things. And so I think that heritage that we have as people, we need to correct that and make sure everybody has a, an honorable place at the seat. Um, exactly. I'd love to hear, so you said you're also doing some research, but I'd love to hear like your long-term goals, you know, how that's going to work into mm -hmm. like the legacy. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. Well, yeah, I'm trying to narrow down what exactly I would like to dig deeper into in my studies. I definitely am interested most of all in the intersection between women's studies, women's issues, and theology, because I do think it has such far-reaching effects culturally, just whether you feel religious or not, you know, it's affecting how we relate with one another. And so I think those things are really fascinating, and I would love to dig into that. I love talking about these things and teaching about these things and these ideas and starting discussions about them. And so ultimately, I would really like to teach, um, maybe at a higher level, a college level, or at least to young adults. That's where I feel like we really could make a difference in changing the, our future trajectory, is mm -hmm. if we could help young people figure these things out better and understand them better in a way that allows them to 
live happier lives, more in alignment with their true selves. You know, I think that that would be just really a great thing for all of us. So that's kind of the direction I'm pointed. Well, and, you know, I'm thinking about healing the world. You think about the young people generation. I guess it's I because it's the the I generation or whatever because of technology. But but depression is so much deeper with those kids because there's a disconnect. You know, there's community disconnection. And, And then, like I said, that also relates into the family heritage that they might have. And mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. uh, to be able to do classes with them to know what a rich heritage they have could do a lot yeah. in just helping their self-esteem as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just think uh, changing people's mindsets in becoming a real um, uh, experiential learning sort of mindset is really a healthy way to overcome some of the modern challenges we're facing and and depression and anxiety with our young people is certainly a huge, huge issue. And so, yeah, I I think you're right that those are things that need to be tackled. But concurrently with that, I'm doing work with different organizations and I work with the Elizabeth Smart Foundation right now and we're trying to get some great programs off the ground, self-defense to help women protect themselves better and feel more empowered and especially those who have been victims of sexual abuse and violence to help them feel like they can protect themselves and are worthy of feeling safe and valued. You know, that's really important to me. There are lots of different spaces that I'm working with right now and different directions to take it, but so many opportunities out there. There's just lots of great stuff going on. Well, the cool thing is, is when I read what people like you are doing, where, you know, we're protecting more women and children, it makes me feel hopeful because I see on the other side, our natural man is almost going back to that child sacrifice mentality of like where we don't respect children. And if you look at it, it's a very foundational thing. Um, Once again, if you get into Rene Girard's work and what he felt about, you know, some of the myths that are written are actually about child sacrifice or Chuck, Mm -hmm. but you see like these two worlds going on where you have like the people like that no we got to protect women and children and we have people that want to objectify them and make like sexual relationships with children Mm -hmm. uh, you know okay in our society yeah when it's really takes us back to that natural man I mean that's a very common phrase for us but it's that natural inherent thing of using a child to you know, get that. But it's awesome to see that yeah. we see a good balance on either side. Well, and okay. you know what? Gratefully, I really believe that it's not even balanced. I think there's the vast majority of people are so good and they want mm-hmm. what's best for each other and their loved ones. And they just sometimes don't quite know. They struggle to find a way to feel like they can really help, you know, yeah. we, we feel helpless or because who to trust problems. in a way. Yeah. yeah. Or who to trust, because I think the darker side, even though it's, I believe a small minority, I think it's a very vocal, visible, mm-hmm. small minority. And yeah. so it can be daunting and it's been really, um, exciting and eye opening in the last few years to feel like little old me, that's, that's kind of a lame <laughs> phrase, but like, I didn't, think I wouldn't have guessed that like I could make a difference but you know thousands of people have bought the book and have read it and like it that's amazing that actually if we just are brave enough like step out of that comfort zone and take the risk and 
try, just try yeah. because so in the often, area that you're meant to, you know, we yeah, all have yeah. find your passion and make that your purpose and just do something. And really, I just think that the Lord is so anxious to help us that mm-hmm. if we will just get started trying, Oh, he'll be right there to jump in and help. Yeah. And yeah. We can do great things. We yeah. can make a difference. So that participation, like you mentioned yeah. in the book, is super important. Yeah. Awesome. Well, before mm-hmm. we say goodbye, do you have any final parting words for our listeners? And then give us your contact information, how we can, you know, find more about your book, be part of your Instagram, the stuff that's going oh, yeah. on. Okay. Help with this foundation at all. Oh, <laughs> thank awesome. you. Yeah, thanks. Well, you know what? I would just say everybody just hang in there and keep trying. Like don't be afraid to do something. And if you don't know what, try one thing. And if that didn't work, try another thing and just keep trying different things and find your space and, you know, where you feel that excitement to kind of find your purpose and your mission and your passion. And just don't be afraid of failure. Just know that you know, like Thomas Edison said, he came up with a thousand ways not to make a light bulb, you know, and then he got it right. And look at how much good that's done for all of us. So, you know, don't be afraid to keep trying, but appreciate that you can learn from all of it, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You can turn into a learning experience. And so, so that's great. And don't discount how much the Lord is there to help you. He just loves to help us learn. So I think that that's wonderful. And yeah, I would love to have anybody who'd like to follow along with us and participate, like you said, participate on Instagram. We have great discussions there. We just try to keep it all really hopeful and encouraging and happy. And probably the best way to get in touch with me is if you DM me through that account. That's probably the easiest. My book is available at Deseret Book and DeseretBook.com, but also Amazon or you know, as far as I know, any of those book places. But yeah. and if you have read it and enjoyed it, all authors know that you really appreciate enthusiastic reviews. So please leave a nice review and help guide other people there. That would be great. So we share this message of hope and encouragement. Oh, and then I guess the foundation. Yeah, elizabethsmartfoundation.org. We've got some great things going on. We'd love for you to help out there if you're able and interested. I also do things with Fight the New Drug. That's one of my favorite okay. organizations. Uh, there's another great one called Big Ocean Women that I really like. Um, Days for Girls I really like. Beauty Redefined is an outstanding organization about helping fight the objectification of women, both by others and by ourselves, that they have super resources. So yeah, just get involved wherever you feel so inclined, get involved and do what you can and make the world a better place and be happy as you do it. So, (laughs) well, that's awesome. I feel bad that, you know, like I said, Melinda's probably the first guest I've had that's talked about my own personal theology, but I really feel like her book, Eve and Adam discovering the beautiful balance. I don't think you'd have to be LDS or Mormon or the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You wouldn't have to be of our uh, religious faith to get a lot 
out of this book. It's very hopeful. And then I feel like she's our DNA. She's, you know, in everybody on the human planet. And as long as we know positive things about our heritage, I think it can be such an enlightening book. Um, But again, we've been talking with Melinda Wilwright Brown. She's the author of Eve and Adam Discovering the Beautiful Balance. I just want to thank her for coming on our podcast. And I mean, we touched on pretty much every (laughs) topic that is super powerful. Uh, You know, my language of experimental learning is right up that that alley. But thank you so much. I appreciate it. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you, Rebecca. And take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Luminous Mind. Music featured in this episode from Scott Holmes. To learn more about our podcast, check us out at theluminousmind.net.